On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, the Patriots are back. Oh, God. yeah. I'm wearing the hat. I saw that. Beat the Is that why the hat came back That's, out? Well, I Is need a haircut. I desperately well, need a haircut. And I'm not going to be here for like a month. So it's going to get ugly. Where you, I mean, where are you going? Well. We're going to Chicago. Chicago, New Orleans. Uh, oh, you're on tour. Yeah, bond and off. Okay. Also, well. I just, you know. Hannah doesn't have a lot of sympathy for her. I'm like, I need to get a haircut. She's like, actually, you need to spend time with your daughter. Yes. Yeah, haircuts kind of go by the wayside. Yeah. But anyway, Patriots. Thankfully, I don't have much hair. You look, you look great. <laughs> you look great. Uh, we got a lot going on today, Ben. I'm back from D.C. It was very fun to see a bunch of um, NSC friends that we both know well and uh, spend some time running around. The EEOB talking to folks, getting smarter. They're very generous with their times. It does remind you of like the best part of government is all the career NSC people who you get to like lean on to be smarter about literally anything in the world. Yeah, a lot of the uh, wealth of knowledge in the executive office building. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, great people. Like I'm, uh, The one thing that bothered me, though, they all looked younger than me now. And that... Um, Much younger. I, well, hate, like, to, I hate to tell you younger, that. Consider- yeah. But actually, if anything, that also reminded me of how young we were when we started there. There you I go. I was 31 years old yeah, when we walked 29. in the yeah. yeah, I guess. I will say, actually, just to, on a somber note, since you mentioned the NSC, uh, our, our former colleague, Jeff Bader, uh, who is the senior director for Asia policy, but kind of real China expert. Great guy. Great guy. Um, wonderful guy. One of the leading kind of thought leaders on China in this country. He passed away yesterday. So we do want to pay tribute to Jeff. Very, uh, very sad. Yeah. Incredibly nice guy. Always super generous with his time. Always like fun to be around. Gallows yeah, humor yeah, when things were going guy. badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make yeah, you yeah. laugh on the plane, even had, when you screwed something up. Yeah, like, had just a, a good guy. Had a very good good dark sense of humor, which is uh, a prerequisite to foreign policy work, I think. Yes. It should it, be, at least. It absolutely is. Uh, okay, we have a lot going on and a lot to cover today. We're going to cover the latest news from Gaza, uh, the Biden administration's response. There's an update on the, the uh, Ali Arab hospital explosion that we talked about last week uh, and much, much more. And then we are going to cover some other events in the world. There's this crazy series of stories about Trump and a billionaire in Australia. <laughs> There's some big elections in South America, protests in Iceland. Uh, we haven't talked about Russia and Ukraine for a while, so we'll no. do a quick update there. And then, Ben, you're talking later this afternoon with Senator Chris Murphy, right? Yeah, Chris Murphy, one of the more thoughtful uh, voices in the United States Congress uh, focused on foreign policy. So I want to talk to him. You know, I think as someone whose views generally align pretty closely with this podcast, but how is he seeing the situation in Gaza? 
what is he concerned about in terms of the ramifications for kind of the U.S. position in the world, which is something he's worked on a lot? What is in this aid package? Um, I mean, I do think it's worth kind of questioning, like one hundred and six billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, and particularly, you know, like what what is you know what is Congress's role in kind of you know uh, necessarily conducting some oversight over is all that really needed? And yeah, just just uh, just where is this going in the Democratic Party? That they, we shouldn't pretend like that's not an issue. You know? Can you figure out why Bob Menendez is still on the Senate Foreign Relations I was Committee? <laughs> Why there's a a spy for a foreign government that it borders the war that is happening, who still apparently has access to classified briefings. Uh, yeah, that'll be, I'll ask him that. We had Rachel Maddow on Pod Save America last night. We were watching her show beforehand, and she went in on this. And she's like, yeah, well, Rachel's right. Like, why the, why is this guy still in the committee? Totally crazy. <laughs> like, and, and, and friend of the pod, Andy Kim, who's running against him, keeps like, you know, Xing or tweeting like, hey, can this guy be ejected from the Senate? Which is actually not in Andy's interest in some ways, you know, like... Um, it's shocking to me that Democrats are kind of okay with like a, a someone the Department of Justice has deemed a spy being in the yeah. Armed Relations Committee. I think Menendez stays in the Senate because then he can continue to use his campaign account to pay for his lawyers. It becomes your legal defense mm. fund. Mm. But it doesn't make any sense to me why Democrats would allow him to stay on the committee. On the committee. I can imagine Menendez playing some hardball and screwing with Schumer, but I don't know, maybe not caucusing with the Democrats, making his life a little harder um, but yeah. I don't know. I'd love to know the answer. Be nice to have it just be a little bit cleaner. And you're right. I mean, he could, you don't have to kick him out of the Senate, but why he's on a foreign relations committee when that's what he was getting gold bars for. I mean, literally the work he did on that committee was a part of what he was indicted yeah, for. Yeah. We're all innocent until proven guilty, but we're not, not all given access to sensitive information yeah. until proven guilty. Exactly. That's not quite how my clearance works. No, no. Um, finally, we'll close today's show with a preview of a new subscription segment. So starting today, Pod Save the World is available ad-free when you sign up for Friends of the Pod at crooked.com slash friends. We will also be doing bi-weekly Q&A segments with questions from listeners. So you will hear uh, the first of those Q&As at the end of today's show, but moving forward, they're going to be for subscribers only. So sign up at crooked.com slash friends. You get ad-free Pod Save the World, bonus bi-weekly Q&A segments, and then all the other excellent Crooked content that you get with friends of the pod friends with a lot of benefits or friends with a lot of, yeah. also the crooked the discord by the way discord all you old heads out there it's just a chat room it's really easy yeah. to set up but it's like very very smart people um sharing helpful well, information well they, they we know that they have access to vast reams of classified documents vast <laughs> resources on military bases around the world okay ben let's start with the situation on the ground in gaza so authorities in gaza say that more than 5700 palestinians have been killed since the fighting began uh, on october 7th the gaza health ministry which which you should note is controlled by Hamas, said Tuesday it had recorded the single highest death toll uh, day of this conflict, 700 people dead in a day. The humanitarian aid is barely trickling in. Uh, dozens of trucks carrying food, water, and medicine have made it into Gaza since Saturday, but hundreds of trucks worth of aid are needed per day. Uh, and those shipments so far don't include fuel, which is desperately needed to power hospitals and water pumps. Israel doesn't want to allow fuel shipments into Gaza because they're worried that Hamas will take the fuel and use it for military purposes. Hamas released four hostages so far out of the estimated 222 taken. Uh, two Americans were released. Judith and Natalie Ronan, uh, they were released Friday. And then on Monday, 79-year-old Nort Cooper and 85-year-old uh, Yoheved Lifshitz were released. Uh, their husbands are still being held hostage. At a press conference, uh, Ms. Lifshitz said she was beaten, taken by motorbike to Gaza, and then held in an underground tunnel network. 
Hamas has said, uh, unfortunately, this is scary, Ben, they don't have all of the hostages. Some are being held by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant group. So there's going to be like several sets of negotiations to get people out. Uh, so Ben, I want to get into the the Biden response to all of this in a minute, but um, I was in DC last week. It is clear that they, the Biden team is very frustrated with the pace of aid shipments um, like everybody else is. I still can't totally figure out why it's happening. It seems like there's some combination of Israeli restrictions, the Egyptians initially being kind of intractable, I think getting better. Hamas is obviously making everything more complicated and maybe the UN is not really fully taking ownership of the process here. But like, what's your sense of why it's been so hard to get this aid in and what it'll take to free it up? I think everything that you said applies. Uh, And look, the question is, is this like a serious, comprehensive effort to mitigate the humanitarian situation in Gaza? Or is it just like a symbolic, you know, here's some trucks going across the border? I mean, bringing in, to be clear, I think that the shipments that have gone in are like less than what would have gone into Gaza before the war. A normal day was 100 trucks. a lot less than a normal day. And the humanitarian re- needs are much, much greater because of all worse, yeah. you know the injuries and all the hospital needs and all the shortages that have been created by the siege. And so, you know, wh- what you'd want to see is not something that feels like, hey, we need some pictures of some trucks rolling in. And I, and honestly, I think the Biden people are sincere in wanting something more than that. But like, you don't, you know, want a situation where it, it's kind of cynical. It's like here's like twenty trucks rolling every few days, and it's like. That, that just disappears like a drop in the ocean. So what you need is like a very sustained supply chain of humanitarian supplies that roll across that border without trouble from the Egyptians that the Israelis like see as part of what they're doing and not as some kind of inconvenience to what they're doing. And that, you know, to address the Hamas piece of it, and I know Israel has serious issues with the UN agency that works in Gaza, but I mean, they are the United Nations they should be able to have custody of this material and try to monitor it and get it to places. And that doesn't mean you might not see Hamas try to siphon off some of it, but like if there's a UN process, it should be able to call that out. And and so, I mean, it just, this doesn't feel like a, a major push. It feels a bit thus far like kind of optics. Hmm. Yeah, we, we, um, we also reached out to an aid worker in Gaza uh, named Najla Shawa. She works for Oxfam, a humanitarian organization. Uh, and this is how she described what life is like for her sheltering in central Gaza with her two daughters. Here's a clip. I considered myself very, very privileged and lucky because I'm with um, just uh, around 60 people in, in this place where uh, everything is on top of the other. We, we don't have enough space uh, inside to, to sleep. We still, some of us, like around seven or eight, sleep outside, either in cars or in um, the floor outside. It's, um, again, uh, the situation is, is, is really, uh, really challenging. We had uh, five of the children, actually, uh, within less than 24 hours, had uh, vomiting. Uh, and uh, a few had some diarrhea. Uh, we hope that they are recovering and it's just a virus. Um, 
course, the water that we drink here is from the water tankers that we are not uh, super confident of the cleanliness. Our sleep is, of course, uh, never continuous. Uh, all night there has been uh, tank shelling uh, at Nusayrat, Zilbalah, especially Nusayrat uh, area, which is uh, very close to here. And um, was like just without any exaggerating exaggeration, I was I was just like uh, expecting one to just fall on top of me uh, any uh, any second. Since you're privileged and lucky to be with 60 people sheltering in one room. Yeah, it's a reminder, too. Like, we're criticizing kind of the government policies that are making this harder. There are some, like, heroic aid workers on the ground. And and, and just so people know, I mean, because this Hamas issue is real, but there are, you know, the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, Doctors Without Borders, the Norwegian Refugee Council, you know. These are, like, very credible agencies that have people risking their lives on the ground. And they deserve the support of getting what's necessary to alleviate what is a humanitarian crisis. Yeah, and you know what? What she describes there is some children um, starting to have problems with diarrhea and yeah. vomiting. Like, hopefully, all those kids are okay. But I, I think this is the concern, right? Is that these these waterborne diseases could lead to a real uh, medical emergency? Yeah, and when you don't know where your next glass of water is coming from, and you're being traumatized by this kind of bombardment. Um, it, it is a, it's an incredibly acute situation for children, and we should be trying to make that as better as possible. Yeah. Uh, we also reached out to a woman named uh, Abby Own. She lives in Tel Aviv. Uh, her 80-year-old cousin, Carmela Don, and Carmela's 12-year-old granddaughter were murdered by Hamas. Uh, horrifyingly, uh, Abby still has three other relatives missing. Their ages are 50, 16, and 12 years old. Uh, they're presumed to be hostages. The first clip you're going to hear is how Abby learned about the news that her family had been taken. The first confirmation that we got before anything from the military was a video that Hamas uploaded on October 8th on Sunday uh, with arrows in their hands. They're holding him and they're dragging him down the road at some point. After we got confirmation of them being hostages, which in some level gave you hope that they could be alive and that they would return, Two days after that, we got um, a military confirmation that both Carmela and Noya had been murdered. They were indeed kidnapped, which is why they weren't found on the kibbutz. They were not among the living or the dead, but their bodies were found near the Gaza border. We're not sure which side. And so we had their funeral on Friday. We buried a 12-year-old and her grandmother. And at the same time as we're trying to grieve, we are still fighting because We still have three family members that are part of the 220 now hostages. Um, And so as much of the country, we are grieving and fighting at the same time. We also asked Abby uh, about her contacts with the U.S. government, and and she contrasted that uh, with uh, the outreach she has received from the Israeli government. I don't know any family right now that will tell you that Israel has been forthcoming in the way that they share information. What I think I know is that Israel was not well prepared. Something broke, whether it was government or military, that allowed this attack to happen at this scale. And the cataloging of what happened, the cataloging of close to 2,000 bodies and doing those DNA checks and finding places for those bodies, it feels awful to even talk about, but it's true. While you're preparing for some sort of response, the greatest terror attack Israel has seen the, the most number of Jews killed since the Holocaust, there has to be a response. But we, as the families, continue to advocate 
for the return of hostages before anything escalates. And then finally, Ben, uh, Abby talks about, you know, just what this horror has been like for her family uh, and President Biden's message in Israel, warning Israel not to react out of rage like America did after 9-11. Last Thursday, after we got the news about Carmela and Noya, you know, my children are 12, 10 and 7 and they are living through sirens and they know that mom is busier than normal because I'm trying to advocate on behalf of our family. But they didn't really put the pieces together. And we had to sit down and talk about terror and death and kidnapping and hostages and murder and things that I would never want to explain to them. And so on one side, I feel heartbroken for them because you wish that this stuff would never come to their doorstep. And and clearly I feel concerned for all of our children. I don't know anyone in Israel, really anyone that wishes the civilians of Palestine harm. I think they're being held hostage by Hamas the same way that my family is. We have both the terror attack and the war. And so we had October 7th, but it didn't end there. We get rockets every day. We have more than 360,000 troops on the Gaza border right now. Every one of us knows someone murdered, missing, kidnapped, serving. We are, as a country, broken and fighting at the same time. And to answer what you asked about Biden... I don't think he's wrong. I think rage is the wrong emotion right now. I think we have to choose productivity and hope and optimism and, of course, realism at some level. But if we let rage take over, we lose. So, Ben, just a little glimpse into, you know, the nightmare that so many of these families are living through right now. And um, pretty amazing poison. Yeah, no, that's considering uh, that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, pretty uh, remarkably thoughtful. And yeah, it's, it's a reminder that even as the the lens has understandably shifted to what's happening in Gaza. I mean, that there are so many Israeli families that are still dealing with the trauma of losing a loved one, of having hostages missing. And as she points out, you know, it's a small country with an enormous reserve force. I mean, just about everybody knows somebody who is in some danger, right? If they don't already know somebody who's been affected by the Hamas attack, like they, they probably have someone serving in the reserves on the northern border near Hezbollah or down the southern border, perhaps preparing for a ground invasion. So this is um, this is still a very fresh moment. But I think what she captures in her own comments is that there's ways to to channel that, that 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 could be productive, you know? Yeah. So we recorded last week just before President Biden's trip to Israel. I think, though, you know, it, it sort of went as I think we expected it would go. Biden's presence in Israel, his message, I think, was incredibly meaningful to a lot of Israeli citizens. Uh, Amir Tibone, uh, the Haaretz reporter who's been on this show before, he was part of a, a small group of Israelis who actually got to speak with Biden just before he left. Uh, they brought a group of them together. And uh, we asked him to send us, you know, sort of a little clip of his reflections of that time with Biden, what they talked about, what it was like and what it meant to the folks in that room. When the president arrived, he really moved around the room from one person to the other. And each one of us received, you know, two or three minutes of his time. And he shook our hands and he looked straight into our eyes and he listened to our stories. And he hugged people and he shed some tears with us. After he finished working the room, uh, he gave a short statement to the press and we were sure that was it because the Secret Service and someone from his staff was starting to hint that, you know, Mr. President, it's time to go. But then he raised his finger and he said, no, wait a minute. 
I need to talk to these people. It's something I will never forget. And, and I wrote an article about this in Haaretz. I've been very critical of our leadership here in Israel over the past two weeks because Netanyahu, he's not good at showing empathy. And he's not good at hugging people and showing love and support and emotion. He's also no good, not so good at other things like running the country, running the military, keeping us safe. Um, but just on the emotional level, it's... It's just been very disappointing, and um, it was a great relief to receive this hug and support from President Biden. So pretty amazing, Ben, hearing that, you know, for a lot of Israelis, like the only comfort and empathy they received from a leader was from Joe Biden and not from not from Bibi Netanyahu. Yeah, I mean, first of all, something that comes out in, in both those clips beyond just the immense power of these stories is that the anger at Netanyahu, you know, mm -hmm. which gets expressed more candidly in Israel than here. Way <laughs> like, more. It's yeah. interesting. Um, but that, that some of it does center around this kind of absence of empathy um, or even services for the victims, you know, this lack of communication with people that have family members who are hostage or missing. Um, I, the Biden thing, you know, it doesn't um, surprise me. I, I've seen him do that. Uh, and it is quite remarkable when he does it, he kind of locks in on people in a way that is unusual even for politicians that are usually good at that. But, you know, look, I, we should talk about the visit. I mean, I, on the one hand, it obviously was immensely powerful uh, to show that support for the Israeli people at a very visceral time. Um, and he clearly accomplished that completely. You know, like there was no question that that, that was received uh, in a way that was... I think we'll always stay with Israelis, you know. Um, it's also the case, though, what's interesting is that Biden's administration, by their own accounting, right, has kind of tried to stay out of this a little bit. You know, they didn't want to kind of be dragged back into the morass of Middle East oh, peace yeah, right. processes and things like that. And, and I think there was an awareness at going, you know, and meeting with Bibi. You know, it's not Biden didn't really have a choice. but Literally, literally hugging. Hug, yeah, literally hugging Bibi. And then being briefed by the Israeli war cabinet, um, you know, that inserts the United States, uh, we should just say that, you know, like right in the middle of this thing, mm -hmm. you know, like we can't say that we're not, you know, if we're, if we're getting briefed by the war cabinet and, you know, making an emergency supplemental request to Congress, like we're, we are a part of whatever military operation they do. And Biden seems to be betting that this goodwill that he has and this affinity that he has for Israel will allow him to affect their decision-making to show some degree of restraint, to provide that humanitarian assistance into Gaza, and perhaps to scale back what might be more maximalist ground invasion or effort to displace people out of Gaza. That we don't know. And so it's not to criticize, it is just to say that we should be clear that, you know, this is there were risks associated with this that have yet to play out. You know, Absolutely, yeah. I want to ask you about that because the, the, the public messaging was basically, you're not alone, we got your back but also don't repeat the mistakes we made after 9-11. And you're right. I mean, there was this really um, unprecedented meeting that Biden had with the Israeli war cabinet where he reportedly pressed them on kind of what's your day after plan for the day after the war in Gaza? How do you occupy it? What happens then? And then um, 
It also seems clear to me from public reporting that Biden is pushing Israel hard to refrain from launching an attack on Hezbollah. There's reports that members of the cabinet, even the defense minister, actually wanted to preemptively strike Hezbollah targets in the north. Uh, The Biden administration is pushing them hard not to do that. But I, I too, am having a hard time figuring out what the Biden position is on a ground invasion. Like my theory after kind of reading all the coverage and then talking to people um, in D.C. last week, Ben, is I think that they are very concerned about a ground invasion. They're they're worried it could turn into a quagmire that leads to big casualty numbers and no clear ending. I think they're also very worried that a Israeli ground invasion into Gaza would draw in Hezbollah and other regional militia groups. You're already seeing Iranian proxy forces in Iraq, Syria, yeah. and Yemen launching strikes. I mean, the, the the U.S. carrier strike group, I think, had to intercept a bunch of cruise missiles launched by the Houthis at Israel. Our troops are getting attacked uh, in the Middle East. But it also seems like the Biden team maybe is sort of resigned to the fact that ground invasion is going to happen, or at least that the Israelis want it to happen. And they don't want to be seen as telling Israel what to do. So instead, they're asking like all these questions. They sent over some general who's apparently an expert in urban warfare. Yeah. But I don't know. But it, it, like either, either they just don't want to tell anyone they're not pushing for a ground invasion. They maybe they privately understand that it's going to happen, or that it might be the, what's required to get rid of Hamas. But I don't know. Like, what's your sense? My sense is that I mean. Th- they clearly have succeeded in getting the Israelis to listen to them. Um, I mean, literally flying all the way over there into the president of the United States and a senior team. And Tony Blinken has been there multiple times. And we're sending generals like they, they clearly think that if they can just get in front of the Israelis, they can make them think twice and three times and four times before doing certain things. They clearly want to control for escalation. Like you said, I think they don't want to see a conflict with Hezbollah. And look, I think on a ground invasion, you and I have expressed our concerns about it. I wrote a piece if people want to read it in the New York Review of Books um, that expresses concerns about that escalation. There are more limited ways. There's a difference between full ground invasion, yes. uh, house-to-house fighting versus, you know, targeted incursions to take out Hamas leadership or try to rescue hostages, right? right? And I'm not suggesting that is easy. More like a phased approach. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I have concerns about all of it because uh, we've already seen just from the aerial bombardment just how devastating that can be in a densely populated area like Gaza, but they may just think they can turn that dial a bit. I mean, they've succeeded in getting the Israelis to listen. I don't think anybody thought it would take this long for there to be a ground invasion. So that alone, I think, is evidence that that they've gotten through to at least have them think twice. But that doesn't mean that this still might not happen. And and when it does, you know, the U.S. is kind of positioned behind it. And that's how, whether they stay in that posture will be very interesting. Hopefully it doesn't have to happen, you know. Um, but but I mean, this this is still early days here. Yeah, I should say, uh, Amir Tibon from Haaretz, uh, in a subsequent conversation, said that he thinks that Biden's visit and pressure is the reason that uh, the fighting hasn't been extended to Hezbollah yet. So yeah. that was interesting. I, I mean, obviously, complicating everything is the fact that there are these hostages, right? Some of them are American, but also 500 American citizens are trapped in Gaza and can't seem to get out. Um, ABC News, I think it was this morning, interviewed a lawyer for some of the families who is, you know, furious at the State Department for not doing more to get them out. I reached out to some folks at State about what's going on, and they said the issue is that Hamas won't let Americans leave. They won't let them get to the Egyptian side of the crossing, or maybe they just haven't had personnel 
there to like open the gates literally uh, at the times when some of these families have tried to leave. But like these these 500 Americans are in desperate situations. Like some of them are drinking uh, salt water to stay alive. They've got one family as a little kid. I mean, it's real scary. You can imagine what a desperate scene it is at that border crossing. You know, it was Jesus just total God. chaos on a good day. And, and with the horror of what is happening in Gaza and bombs and shelling behind you. And let's be clear, like these really... Strikes have hit into the south of Gaza, not just the north where they told people to evacuate. And so there, there's this ongoing war zone behind you. There's the kind of bureaucratic craziness of, hey, I'm an American. I can prove it. There's Hamas guys. There's Egyptians who don't want to let anybody in because they don't want any refugees. Like, this is a real crucible for those 500 Americans. And um, you just hope that they can they can get out. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that you've mentioned uh, in a couple episodes is this uptick in violence in the West Bank. Yes. I just want to quantify that. The New York Times reported that more Palestinians have been killed in the Israeli-occupied West Bank in the past few weeks than in any similar period in at least the past 15 years, according to Palestinian health authorities uh, and historical data from the UN. So Israeli forces and settlers have killed 95 Palestinians in the uh, occupied West Bank since October 7th. Most of those deaths are in clashes with the IDF. Some are settler attacks. And then, you know, one other thing we've been watching, Ben, is intra-U.S. government frustration. So uh, last week, a staffer responsible for arms transfers and security assistance at the State Department resigned, saying he could no longer in good conscience provide more arms to the Israeli government. And then Huffington Post reported that there is, quote, a mutiny brewing within state at all levels over Gaza policy. I suspect, you know, that reflects uh, a lot of the differences we're seeing in polling when it comes to race and age in the broader U.S. electorate. Yeah, I, um, I, I've i been talking to people in the administration, too, and I, I find that in my own conversations. You know, like younger people Me are too. feeling deeply conflicted. Um, I think what was, you know, what merits uh, a lot of attention in that uh, kind of uh, resignation letter that from the state official, you know, it was both the complaint about the policy, but, you know, he was suggesting that there's not a space to err questions or, or raise concerns. And, and that's something I think that should be addressed. I mean, there has to be a space. I mean, we're all dealing with that as a country, um, as we've talked about in past episodes. It's language is, can be provocative. One person's question can be, you know, uh, insensitive to somebody else. But but I, I, I do just think that, um, and this was, I think, in one of the most important things in the statement Obama put out yesterday is there has to be some space, particularly in the U.S. government, to be able to kind of ask hard questions and raise concerns and pressure test things, better to do that. That's the better way to try to get this right, you know? Um, um, so we'll see if that, um, we'll see how that uh, evolves here. Yeah, so the, the guy, uh, Josh Paul, is the former director in the State Department's Bureau of Political and Military Affairs who resigned. He had a good uh, op-ed explaining why in the Washington Post on October 23rd. That's worth checking out. One important update, Ben, from last week. So last week we recorded a few hours after the explosion at the uh, Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City. So the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry initially blamed uh, the explosion on an Israeli airstrike. They said nearly 500 people had been killed. The IDF said no, the explosion was the result of a rocket fired from Gaza. That's when we went into the studio and tried to record based on what we knew. So sitting here a week later, 
The U.S., Canada, and France have now all said that the explosion was likely the result of a rocket fired from within Gaza, so from militants. Uh, and investigations by the Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, and CNN also backed that Israeli-U.S. version of events. Um, so, you know, look, it was not great that a lot of news outlets ran with blaring headlines blaming uh, the IDF for the strike without noting that the sole source was Hamas or that it was unvetted or uncorroborated. But also worth pointing out that the IDF over time has created credibility problems for itself by lying to press, uh, in particular lying about the murder of a Palestinian-American journalist named Shireen Abu Akhle. Uh, initially, the IDF blamed her death. She was shot on, uh, on militants. It's come out, it's pretty clear now that she was shot by a member of the Israeli military. Yeah, I, I, that's a real issue. And, and look, th this is, uh, I understand people's, a right to be concerned about this and right to caution that there needs to be some acknowledgement uh, uh, that reports are preliminary. That makes complete sense to me. Um, uh, it's unfortunate and wrong that uh, that context was missing from a lot of uh, reporting. I think we <laughs> tried to caveat our comments on this last week. I, I, I think our caveat was we don't have any fucking- We don't have any, you know. <laughs> what, what I will say is two, other points I'd, I'd add to this. It is worth identifying the fact that when you see health ministry that that's like, you know, Hamas controlled. I'm going to add a but here to this, though. Like the doctors in the hospitals, like Hamas took over Gaza. I, I don't think that that we should then therefore suggest that all healthcare workers are like, these are not people that had anything to do with happening on October 7th. You know, if you're some doctor and Hamas runs Gaza, you know, you're still you're just going to work trying to treat patients. And so I, I sometimes I see this kind of spilling over into kind of impugning everybody who works in any health infrastructure in Gaza. And that's just not the case, you know. Uh, uh, so it's just worth noting that. And look, I, I this has to be gotten right. And particularly on, a, on a, something that is hugely consequential like that. Um, where passions are going to be inflamed around the world and you got world leaders reacting, absolutely call out uh, what became misinformation. It, it's not as if there are not a lot of IDF airstrikes into Gaza, though. I mean, there's a, you know, we shouldn't suggest that, therefore, none of this is true. I mean, there's, there's, we are watching before our eyes, you know, last night, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Palestinians, including a lot of children, got killed, you know. And so let's keep this in the proper context as against everything else that is going on um, and, and, and yeah, try to get these things as right as possible in the future, but it's, it's a war. There are going to be things that are, that, that reporting changes on. Yeah. And, and look, there was, I mean, a lot of people died. It wasn't 500 people died, but uh, well over a hundred died at this hospital. Um, it was an explosion in a place that is being heavily bombed by one party. Reporters weren't making this up out of nothing. They were looking at horrifying images. Yeah. Do they move too quickly? Absolutely, in some cases. Uh, but I think they moved to correct it afterwards. It's also the case, though, in terms of you know the the rate of airstrikes. I mean, the IDF is saying on the record that they're increasing uh, the volume of airstrikes uh, as a, in a lead up to a potential ground invasion because they want to take out as many targets by air as possible, get rid of as many Hamas tunnels as possible in advance of a ground invasion. So that's just the reality on the ground. It's no safer now than it was. 10 days ago, it's probably worse. No, and the fact that it's picking up maybe because, you know, it's some kind of preparation for the ground invasion. I mean, the only the only thing I'm going to say about the language question, because, you know, we we do read your 
uh, feedback uh, listeners and like we get feedback in our own lives on this stuff. I think people make very good points when it's about, hey, don't ignore this suffering and trauma that's happening. So it, it, we do not look away from the hurt that Israelis are feeling, the pain that people are in from losing loved ones or having hostages in the same way that Palestinians are saying, don't look away what, from what's happening in Gaza. Look at what's happening to, to people here, innocent people. Look at what's happening to children. When you start to say, like, don't look at the other side's suffering, like, that's when I start to have a problem. You know, like, wh- why are you paying any attention to these people in Gaza? Or why do you, you know, like, a- everybody is equal here as human beings. And, and that should be the kind of value proposition that we bring to these discussions. Yeah. And, you know, again, like I think 1.4 million people in Gaza have left their homes. I've seen reports that up to a third of homes or structures have been destroyed so far. Yeah. Uh, I think 200,000 Israelis have evacuated from the north of Israel because they're worried about uh, fighting with Lebanon. So it's just a horrifying situation yeah. all around for everyone. Uh, one last thing, Ben, I wanted to play before we move on to some other topics. So um, I caught a clip from Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from over the weekend. She was at a peace rally in Washington, D.C., I believe. So Ilan Omar was born in Mogadishu, and she spent her early life in Somalia before fleeing the country to escape the Somali civil war. Um, she then spent four years living in a refugee camp with her family in Kenya before coming to the United States. Here's a clip from her comments. Imagine sitting in your house, hearing, hearing the noise that announces that you might vanish at any given moment. Holding on to yourself, your family members, trying to get as close to the farthest wall as you can because all you are hoping for is if that bomb drops in your house, that you can at least, at least crawl out. I did that every night every week, every month, repeatedly. 12 rockets fell on the house I lived in. I am 41 years old. To this day, to this day, my bed, the side I sleep on, is right next to the wall because that trauma has not left me. So Ben, I just want to play that because I think that's a perspective you don't hear a lot in Washington, let alone from a member of Congress. And, you know, I sort of say this with uh, a lot of self-awareness and kind of pointing the finger at myself as a former NSC spokesman. But I think the conversation about war in the West is often filled with euphemism and this language about smart bombs. Collateral and san- damage. Yeah, all this sort of sanitized, yeah. antiseptic bullshit um, that I think obscures the wounds that the wars inflict, even on people who survived, like she did. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. I've talked to some people a lot about this over the years and uh, talking to people that grew up in in circumstances exactly like she describes, actually. It's kind of eerie. Um, And because what they'll describe to you is the the terror of the uncertainty, right? If, If it's you're getting shelled day after day, rockets are coming in day after day, um, you're obviously afraid of dying. You're afraid of losing loved ones. You're hearing about people you know who've been killed or maimed. Um, you don't know where your next meal's from. You're rationing water. You're taking a sip when you used to have a cup of water. You you can't sleep because of the the noise. You 
any sound could kill you. Uh, I mean, it on and on and on. And I think hopefully there'll be some good additional pieces we can lift up about this. And that that obviously can completely it takes life, it maims life, uh, it devalues life in the in the lived moment. But as as Ilhan says, like that that never leaves you. Like the 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 people deal with trauma their whole life and. And so when you're looking at 2 million people in that circumstance and, you know, a lot of communities in Israel that are facing rocket fire in addition to the, the terrorist attack, um, this should be part like this antiseptic way. I'm glad you called this out, Tommy, like the antiseptic way we talk about war, you know, a, an incursion, you know, like a, an incursion into God. I was on TV that day and someone just kept talking about an incursion. Like what? what that that makes it sound kind of like, oh, just you know, walk on through here, you know, yeah. like, uh, or, you know. Smart bombs. Smart bombs, precision guided weapons. No, like if the, the, it's a it's a rocket that's going to hit something and kill people. And even if it does hit the right target, all the people, you know, who hear that think what she, what Ilhan describes. And so this is. We, we don't own the outcome of what these wars do. And what I did in the my New York Review of Books piece is I talked a bit about, you know, basically Israelis and Palestinians are locked in this cycle of trauma. Like where, it, by the way, the origin of their traumas, you know, go way, way back, you know. And at some point, if you don't stop that cycle, it just keeps re- re- replicating itself. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you need that kind of leader that has the wisdom to say, enough actually you know on both sides and and that leadership is missing on both sides and i think that's why people feel so um ang- anxious about what's coming here because there's not someone standing up and saying like yitzhak rabin did and saying you know what actually like there's a better way of of protecting ourselves you hear actually a lot of israeli citizens saying that um, yeah you hear like ehud barak you know yeah. some of the more thoughtful sort of more statesman like um former elected officials in this case. But yeah, I mean, this is, I think, why I think a lot of us are so anxious about what comes next, because it's like ground invasion, no ground invasion, airstrikes, like humanitarian pause, all of that would be important, but there still has to be some sort of long-term process to give people a sense of hope and the future for themselves, whether you're in the West Bank or Gaza. And that has just been off the table since what, like 2000? I mean, Obama made a, a hard run at, you know, a real Middle East peace process and summit in 2010. We had Abbas, Netanyahu, the leaders of Egypt, Jordan, everybody at the White House, and it just, it led to nothing. Well, and you didn't have to live through the John Kerry process uh, in 2014. that was uh, even more intensive. It's interesting. Um, I mean, your core point is right, that the the outcome of this war should be a Palestinian state, you know? I mean, because uh, anything else other than that is likely to perpetuate this conflict. Um, uh, the one thing I've been thinking about, though, is that sometimes those efforts felt like a waste of time because it, you know, just didn't... I never felt like we were on the doorstep of Middle East peace, even when Kerry had proposals and and we had that summit in 2010. But the act of trying... It kept um, the lid on it things. It kept the lid yeah. on things. You know, like, I don't want to be... Because there can be a cynicism to that, too. No, but it like, did. It, did. it allows people to kind of channel their feelings about this into some political process. There were kind of talks about a Palestinian 
authority Hamas, you know, reconciliation to try to peel off some people from the worst elements of Hamas. So, the, you know, so even when you're not solving a problem, trying to solve it um, can help prevent things like this explosion. You know, when I think back on those days, my core frustration now is like with the benefit of hindsight, it's obvious that Netanyahu never wanted to yeah. give up what he needed to give up to get to a deal and was just essentially playing us all. And I think that, frankly, the Clinton administration people felt the same way in 2000 when they spent, what, two weeks at Camp David trying to negotiate a Middle East peace deal and also ultimately felt like the U.S. can't want it more yeah. than the two parties. In that case, it was Arafat, right? Yes. In that case, you had a Palestinian leader who had a deal on the table um, and just couldn't get there. Um, uh, but that's what I mean. Like, there's just this, there's this need for leadership on, 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 on both sides of this conflict that is, that is woefully short. Yeah. Uh, anything else on Gaza you want to talk about before we move on? No, I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot to watch, obviously, around escalation and ground war, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, just keep an eye on just how many military assets the United States has moved to the region. There's like two aircraft carriers, a bunch of missile defense batteries. Like, I, I you can tell the administration is just very nervous about what these Iranian proxy groups are going to do next and what Hezbollah might do. And there's a question that I asked Chris Murphy, which is, uh, you know, if Hezbollah gets involved, we've kind of warned them. Does that mean we're potentially going to bomb Hezbollah targets and become like an active participant in this war? What is our, you know, tripwire to, is it Hezbollah attacking us? Or, you know, I think there's a lot of ambiguity out there right now, which, you know, sometimes you want that ambiguity to give yourself room to maneuver. So I I get that, but it's, it's a tinderbox. Yeah, it's a little scary. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about why Donald Trump was coughing up nuclear secrets to Australia. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. Hi, it's Martha Stewart 
You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Okay, Ben, so Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in Washington this week for an official visit and a state visit. Uh, He will not be addressing a joint session of Congress because there is no Speaker of the House who could even have invited him, which is great and very functional. Uh, But Ben, so the the Australian comedy gods are smiling down upon us once again. Uh, We discussed... Anthony Pratt on this show before. He's this weird Did we? Australian billionaire. Yeah, well, in the context of this story. Yeah, okay. He's the Australian, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, he's a guy who joined Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Oh yeah, to no, kiss I know Trump's all about ass, Anthony Pratt. Right? Yeah. He he got uh an earful of nuclear submarine secrets from Trump, presumably around the pool. Yeah. Uh, including details about the number of nuclear warheads that our subs carry and how close they can get to Russian submarines without being detected. Pretty sensitive stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you <laughs> yeah. think? Yeah. Fun stuff to share uh, with your boys. By the way, that's not even information that I in, like consumed in government because I didn't, you know, like Donald Trump had to seek that out. It's not like, you know, why Why does he even know, like, you know, I didn't sit around worrying about like the positioning of the nuclear submarine. Yeah, the nuclear sub like warhead payload thing is weird to me. You can imagine some, you know, the head of the Joint Chiefs being like, sir, this submarine can get within 16 feet of a Russian sub and they yeah. can't even hear. He's like, oh, I'm going to brag to Melania <laughs> and my buddies about all of it. <laughs> and some Australian billionaire. Yeah, and some Australian billionaire who told 54 people. Uh, but now then, uh, Australian 60 Minutes got hold of this audio of Pratt talking about his dealings with Trump. We also, we played this on Pod Save America, but it's very fun because it's just such a unique window, I think, into the kind of operation uh, that Trump runs. Yeah, and Trump said, uh, you know, that Ukraine phone call, that was nothing compared to what I usually do. He knows exactly what to say and what not to say so that he avoids jail, but gets so close to it that it looks to everyone like he's breaking the law. All of these guys are like the mafia, Trump, Rupert, Rudy. You want to be a customer, not a competitor. Rudy is someone that I hope will be useful one day. Plus, I just think he's cool. It's not all just sort of like seat of the pants shit. I think that him and Rudy are like that and they're plotting all this out. Melania, who was sitting next to him at dinner, he said, I asked Melania to walk around the pool in a bikini so all the other guys could get a look at what they were missing. Then Melania said back to him, I'll do that when you walk around with me in your bikini. I love that comic relief for us on the show is uh, Trump coughing up nuclear secrets. Australia, like, you're not sending your best. Uh, I, I mean, do you ever, like, hear somebody who's, like, a multi-billionaire who just sounds like a dumbass? You know, yeah, like, this guy. It's just a good reminder that you can be really rich and just be an idiot, you know. Rudy is so cool. Like, like he offered guy, him a million dollars to come to his birthday guy's party. Judgment is lacking a little bit. Like he's so impressed by Trump's like. I was gonna say dick measuring. Can I say that? I mean, I, you you know, yeah, yeah. Like I just did. I like. I. It's just like Melania in the pool. I mean, what? Like what? It actually. It, it just further reinforces just how completely casual Donald Trump is with corruption, foreign interests, the nation's secrets. Like, there's no distinction probably in Trump's brain between talking about nuclear stealth submarine technology and Melania in a bikini. 
Like they're the same thing. It's just showing off. Like let me show off with my like pretty yeah. wife, and then let me show off with like my stealth subs that I got to brief uh, get briefed on as president. Like it's just so fundamentally unserious, and it juxtaposes with Gaza too. Like oh, this is the guy we want to put back in charge as like. World War Three is two-thirds of the way there. And we, yeah. I mean, it's not good. That has really been highlighted for me this week. It is interesting that Trump leaks all these nuclear submarine secrets to the Aussies. Shortly after, Biden cuts a deal to sell the Australians our subs. Do you think Kurt Campbell owes Trump a thank you for helping, like, pre-grease this deal? It does suggest, I mean, I wonder that, too, because there was, like, it does suggest maybe there was, like, a long-standing AUKUS negotiation mm-hmm. that Trump probably had nothing to do with, but got a briefing on and just decided to take that with him back to Mar-a-Lago, yeah, you know? On the golf course or yeah. something. Kurt Campbell, by the way, newly uh, nominated to be Deputy Secretary Deputy of State. Deputy Secretary of State. Yeah, he so was on this show Clearly, this show was like a springboard for Kurt's career. Yeah. Like, uh, he was, he'd hit a ceiling. He was stuck at the NSC. He does pod save the world. Next thing you know, this guy's like Deputy off, Secretary. off to the races. Yeah. Springboard for everyone but us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, two big elections we should mention in South America. So uh, Argentina held its presidential election on Sunday. No candidate was able to get a majority of the votes. So the current economy minister, Sergio Massa, and far-right candidate Javier Mille are headed to a runoff election next month. Massa got 37% of the vote. Mille got 30%. Patricia Bullrich, the sort of center-right candidate, only got 24%, and she is out. So Argentina's economy has been in and out of crisis and defaults for decades. Uh, The annual inflation is currently at 138%. And so Massa's success was surprising to a lot of folks because most analysts thought voters are furious about the economy in Argentina. That means they're going to punish the incumbent. Um, Mille, on the other hand, is a nut. He shows yeah. up at, at campaign events with a literal chainsaw, I think, because he's going to slash government spending. Maybe his opponents do. I'm not <laughs> entirely sure. Um, so far, though, it's interesting, though, that that people weren't mad enough, even about 140% inflation, to vote for a self-described anarcho-capitalist. And then, Ben, in Ecuador... They elected 35-year-old banana fortune heir Daniel Noboa uh, as its youngest president. He ran on an aggressive anti-crime platform, uh, suggesting proposals ranging from more cops to turning ships into floating jails. Ecuador has a a really horrible violent crime problem. Uh, This year alone has tallied more than 4,900 violent deaths. And earlier this year in August, uh, a presidential candidate was assassinated. Ben, any thoughts on these uh, results here, especially our... um, potentially, you know, chainsaw-wielding friend down in Argentina. Yeah, so this guy's really a lunatic. Um, You know, he has some proposals like uh, the dollarization of the uh, Argentina economy, like, so putting the whole, you know, country's currency into the dollar. He has, he wants to cut, like, most departments. It reads like Vivek Ramachamri's, like, platform, essentially. Slash the whole thing. Um, He also... Uh, I think had four beloved dogs or something that, um, you know, he said were like his advisors. And then I think like, <laughs> I think the dogs may have died, but he took their like DNA and made a new dog. And what? says that, yeah, it's, it's some dog situation that is not normal, basically in which he says like his, they're his advisors and, you know, it's not like a, okay. and, and like, to be clear, like Argentina, very important country. We have a lot of love for Argentina. They're also in the G20. I think they're due for like the presidency of the G20 too. Perfect. Like, so this guy could end up presiding over that. So he he does, even though he's more like, you know, clearly far right libertarian lunatic vibes. There's a Bukele thing. Like mm-hmm. we've talked about Bukele in El Salvador. This just kind of like 
complete uber populism for populism's sake and sensationalist and weird. Um, th- that I mean, I get maybe we started that with Trump, I guess, but like th- th- that virus is spreading, and unfortunately, it seems like it's likely to spread to Argentina. Yeah, not great. Do you hear that the world's oldest dog passed away at age 31? Uh, Bobby was his name. He lived in uh, in Portugal. Apparently never went on a leash, ate what his humans ate, got uh, food from the farm. 31 years old. That's an old-ass dog. That's I'd, a, I'd like some of that dog DNA in my dog. That's a really good run. It's um, a hell of a run. Yeah. Um, I'm looking, and it does not look like Argentina is due for the presidency of the G20, so that may be one crisis averted. But, Thank uh, God. Yeah, you know, just that guy at summits is a little. You know, does he bring the chainsaw to the summit? I don't, I don't know. know. He also bring the dog like to the a, summit. A Wolverine. He's got a <laughs> he weird look, like a look going on. I don't know. Come on, I know Argent- Argentina's had some rough politics, but I'm not sure this guy's the answer. Yeah, he's not the answer. Uh, let's talk about Iceland. Tens of thousands of women in Iceland went on strike Tuesday uh, to protest workplace inequality. Organizers called for a stop to all work. Uh, that includes household errands, childcare, so all work. Even the prime minister said she would take part, and she expected other women in the cabinet to join. The strike is going to highlight uh, wage and pay parity, and it will highlight the problem of violence against women in Iceland. Iceland has the best overall score on the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, but the wage gap still is 21%. So in the, the best-performing country, the wage gap is still 21%, which is why the prime minister of the country is hitting the streets to protest. So all for that. Good for Iceland. Um, you know, they, yeah, I expect better out of them. On the, I mean, our wage gap is totally shitty too. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, the Iceland can be like a laboratory for fixing things because it's of a certain scale, you know, and reasonableness. Yeah, wish, what else? Hopefully they can help us fix a lot of our problems. We could just put them in, you know, Obama used to have this joke about, like, uh, having a receivership for global leadership to the Nordic countries, you know, because they're just, like, very reasonable about a lot of things. Yeah. And they give a lot of foreign aid, you know. It would be nice if everyone had their, uh, you know, giant natural gas stores. It makes it a little easier to have a lot of foreign aid. That's fair. That's Easier fair. to balance the budget. Yeah. And then finally, uh, so update on the war in Ukraine. We haven't talked about it in a couple episodes. So, uh, ben, last week we learned that the Biden administration secretly sent these longer-range attack missiles to Ukraine. Those apparently were used in a bunch of surprise attacks all at once on Russian forces that took out dozens of Russian helicopters. So sort of interesting uh, introduction of a new weapon system. Um, Russia has also reportedly been taking huge losses in the Avdivka region uh, in eastern Ukraine. Russia has launched this kind of, you know, crazy counteroffensive. They've been trying to take this town. It's gone disastrously. I've read reports that they've lost like over 900 guys in this one little theater. Uh, and I saw the British government now estimates that nearly 200,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or permanently wounded in the conflict. So that doesn't include guys who are, you know, get patched up and go back out. It also doesn't include Wagner group fighters or the prison conscripts. You got to think the wow, total number. Yeah, yeah. That's tens of thousands. Massive. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, Ben, um, you know, the Washington Post ran this long piece about CIA cooperation with Ukraine's intelligence services. Those are the folks who have been conducting these attacks in Crimea and then deep into Russia. Uh, this report in the Post includes details about the multiple attacks on the Kerch Bridge, uh, which is the bridge that Putin built to connect to Crimea. It talks about the bombing outside Moscow that killed Maria Dugina, who is the daughter of this like virulent uh, nationalist propagandist. I think the attack was clearly meant to kill her father, but it killed her. Much, much more. Stunning amount of detail in this report yeah. about what the Ukrainian intel services are doing, how they're doing it, and probably raises some ethical and legal questions for the CIA about supporting 
this union. Now, obviously, I think a lot of people are going to say, well, look, they're in a war. They got to defend themselves. But, it, um, you know, that doesn't mean that all laws go away and <laughs> restrictions on U.S. assistance under the Leahy Act, et cetera. But a really great report worth reading. Yeah, I think for the CIA, you know, in my experience, um, you know, when you give it a mission, like they really go after that mission, you know, and 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 so it's you don't want to stifle, you know, their capacity to do their jobs, which is by definition in like a murky, ambiguous space. But um, you you do want to have some sense of like limits, you know. Uh, I would think, for instance. Violent, you know, kinetic to use the antiseptic word, mm-hmm. but violent uh, operations on Russian soils, probably the kind of thing that you would not want the CIA to be involved in. Especially against um, a civilian. Yeah, in any kind of escalation risk. Um, so that, you know, I, 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 you wonder whether the incentive for that story to come out is somebody being concerned about where this is going, or it could be like Ukrainians, like proud of their work, you well, know, also I mean, the, or a little bit of both. The, the Ukrainian sort of like head of operations guys yeah. on the record yeah. talking about like, oh yeah, we're working with the CIA on these boat drones. Well, That's they, how we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> or, oh yeah, we, we smuggled uh, a bomb into a truck that drove over the Kerch Bridge. Like, okay. And look, they, they, the Ukrainians have this like tactical interest in um, obviously hitting behind front lines where they're they're kind of stalled. But they also have the strategic risk of showing their people, like, we're going after the Russians. It's people that are killing you, like, we're going after them. And that's a different interest than the U.S. one. Um, and so that does create tension, I think, which is apparent in that article. Yeah, and I also think they're trying to open the aperture of how the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive is being described. Yeah. Like, obviously, it's yes. a bit of a stalemate on the border. But I think they would point to the fact that they're launching these these counterstrikes deep into Crimea. They've basically driven the Russian fleet out of you know the Black Sea. So you know they're I think trying to show success yes. wherever they can yeah. to keep the the uh, assistance flowing. Yeah, morale issue, assistance issue. Um, but I mean, it does you know that that front line is pretty frozen right now. Yeah, it's pretty frozen. Uh, before we go to break, two quick things. So we are big fans of Karyuma here at Crooked Media. They make cool, eco-friendly shoes that we all wear all the time and love. We're excited we're releasing our second collaboration with them. It's Care Yuma and Love It or Leave It. Run, don't walk to get them. They're very cool. Check them out at crooked.com slash store. And then some fun news uh, from Pod Save America. We wrote a book. It's called Democracy or Else, How to Save America in 10 Easy Steps. It's coming out on June 4th. And whether you are a longtime Pod Save America listener or a first-time voter, this book is a fun useful guide to saving our country without losing your mind. And Crooked will donate its profits from democracy or else to support Vote Save America, its partners, and other organizations mobilizing to help progressives in the 2024 election and beyond. We're going to share a lot more details in the coming months, but we know those pre-orders. They matter for the New York Times bestseller list. So if you want to help us out, pre-order democracy or else today at crooked.com slash books or wherever books are sold. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Senator Chris Murphy. So stick around for that. (music) 
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. About to uh, begin my interview with Chris Murphy, I do want to just mention to people you might hear a slightly... A buzzing sound in the background a couple of times. I believe that's the alarm for senators to vote, which uh, Senator Murphy seemed like he was going off to do at the end. So uh, just power through. It doesn't last long. I promise you that. We are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World uh, the great senator from the great state of Connecticut, uh, Chris Murphy. Uh, great to see you, Senator. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, and I did notice, uh, I was saying to you, you're off your uh, walking across Connecticut eating hot dogs tour, which is one of the things that is, occasionally I see something that makes me think that being senator is an attractive job. Um, and, is that, and one, is that one of them? <laughs> yeah, that is one. I'd love to just walk across the state and eat a lot of hot dogs. And so so, so but, but just yeah. to be clear, those are actually two different <laughs> things. So yeah, okay. I walk across the state every year. And th- this year, I'm also touring all of the great hot dog joints of Connecticut. But when I walk across the state, it's for the purpose of meeting constituents, not eating hot dogs. Okay. I mean, we'll, we'll give you that. Uh, we'll give you that correction, that addendum. Uh, I mean, what you could do is you could eat the hot dogs with the constituents and, and then you, you, you get it both. But, uh, but look, we're, we know it's a busy time. Uh, I, I want to obviously focus on Israel and Gaza um, uh, and just kind of start. You've been, um, I think, very eloquent in expressing an argument that we've heard, you know, uh, President Biden and former President Obama have given versions of it. Uh, I mean, I have myself, but I think you very uh, aptly summarize this, the sense that, you know, um, that you know, we should support Israel and providing them with funding and arms in order to destroy Hamas's military capabilities. But I also believe that we should be sharing the lessons that we learned from our response to 9-11. And you later are going to say, with respect to us, we had a day one strategy, but we did not have a day two strategy, um, i.e. we clearly invaded countries without thinking through exactly what was going to come next. As you're watching events unfold, what are you looking for to demonstrate 
that advice, which is coming from a, a place of support for Israel, is being followed? Like, what 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 kind of mix of military and political and and humanitarian assistance policies w- would to you uh, be in concert with your your advice here? So I. I don't think that it's a perfect corollary what we did in Afghanistan and what is happening in Gaza, but I think that there are useful comparisons. And frankly, the first one is to just think back to those first two or three weeks after the attacks uh, of September 11th. Um, frankly, we weren't looking for a lot of people to second guess our political strategy. We weren't looking for a ton of advice on how to be careful to uh, hurt too many civilians. Um, we weren't listening to anybody who was talking about ceasefire. We wanted accountability, right? This was morally devastating to the country, and that's what Israel is going through today. So I think we just have to first remember where we were in those days and understand the the, the fundamental psychological disruption that has happened in Israel. But uh, we did make mistakes, and one of those mistakes was not understanding that when you are too casual, too permissive about civilian death, you end up creating more terrorists uh, than you kill. Um, the other uh, mistake we made was to have plans that looked really good on paper, but didn't actually play out in reality. So you can tell yourself that the PA can run Gaza. That might look good on paper, but that government might be only slightly less legitimate than a permanent Israeli occupation. And that's a recipe for long-term disasters. So uh, I think what we need to see is you know, more concern for the impact on civilians and a real workable plan for what happens after you dislodge Hamas from political ownership of Gaza. And I guess, I mean, the two follow-up questions to that are, are, are how concerned are you that of the military viability of of dismantling Hamas in a, an urban zone with over two million people, and or how concerned are you? You've talked a lot to people in the region, including you know Gulf nations that have obviously a lot of resources. Um, do you see the capacity to help try to build a viable alternative to Hamas, and frankly, to the PA, which doesn't have much credibility either? Um, maybe with Arab resources, is there some kind of Palestinian alternative leadership that can be like an end state here as well? So this right now sounds to me like one of those plans that looks very good on paper, but may, may not work in reality in the absence of some really serious conversation about the future of a Palestinian state. Um, I think if the ground invasion begins it, and there are mounting civilian casualties, it becomes harder, not easier, for Gulf states to step in and help build whatever comes after uh, Hamas. Um, But if there is a belief that there is a new commitment from the Israeli government uh, to get serious about a Palestinian state after this crisis passes, perhaps that is what's necessary to get that buy-in from the Emiratis or the Saudis or the Qataris who can be helpful in trying to stabilize Gaza. Um, but um, again, the, the, the higher the civilian casualties are, the longer the humanitarian um, uh, nightmare continues, the more difficult it is to get those Gulf countries to, uh, to, to, to buy in to, to the future of Gaza. Well, obviously, so much of this is contingent on how the ground invasion goes forward. I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about different aspects of potential escalation here. 
And the first is there's a, a major request that's been made of Congress for additional supplemental funding for Israel, among other partners. Obviously, that's kind of tied up in the circus in the House of Representatives. Um, but just taking it at face value, wh- what is in that package? Uh, wh- how would you make the case to your constituents that um, th- this is assistance that is needed for Israel? And, and I, I do want to cite, there was a, a, an official from the Political Military Affairs Department at State who resigned. And one of his reasons for doing so is he suggested that and I'm quoting from an op-ed in the Washington Post, Israeli requests for munitions started arriving immediately, including for a variety of weapons that have no applicability to the current conflict. Um, so, I mean, how can you simultaneously want to express support for Israel, but but also you know do the due diligence of scrutinizing, is this, what is this stuff <laughs> that we're being asked to spend a lot of money on at a time when there's not a lot of money to go around? Yeah, well, listen, that's part of our job, right? Part of our job is to do that due diligence and make sure that uh, we are effectively and efficiently spending taxpayer dollars. So I'm only interested in sending um, material to Israel that they need to defend themselves. I, I mean, I, I think that there, you know, there's a wellspring of support to help Israel across the country. One, because f- people just fundamentally believe there is a U.S. interest in helping to secure the viability of a Jewish state in the Middle East. But second, though you know, Hamas is a very different entity than Al-Qaeda or ISIS, um, the United States is stronger when we're making it clear that there's accountability for terrorist crimes. That makes it less likely that terrorists are gonna try to take another shot at us. So for both of those reasons, it's a pretty easy um, uh, decision for members of Congress to make on behalf of their constituents to support Israel. Most of the money, the bulk of the money is frankly to replenish Iron Dome. Um, yeah. Today actually w- was the, the day that we're speaking um, Tuesday is the had, from what I understand, the highest number of rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel since October 7th. So those rocket attacks continue. Um, and so Iron Dome is important to replenish. Some of those dollars are for upgrades to U.S. security for our own forces uh, in the region. Uh, and the rest of it, as you said, you know, Congress will you know, have to look at um, on a line by line basis to make sure that it's things that Israel actually needs to carry out this mission. And we also need to hear what the mission is, right? That's going to be yeah. an important conversation that we will have over the course of the next two weeks. As we appropriate these dollars, we're gonna to wanna to understand what is the scope of the mission? What does victory look like? Um, and assess the viability of that war plan. And I went, you mentioned US forces in the region. Um, and again, you follow this closely. Um, you've seen these kind of warnings from the US um, to Hezbollah, to Iran, to running proxies, to kind of stay out of this. Um, and there also, frankly, you know, been some reporting that that the Biden administration has cautioned Israel against a, a significant escalation into Lebanon just to avoid that kind of escalatory scenario. But we've seen these aircraft carrier strike groups deployed to the region. It, it felt to me like there was a degree of ambiguity, you know, in the warning itself. Um, the question I have that comes from that is, if you saw Hezbollah get involved in a significant way in northern Israel, does that bring the United States into this? Uh, if you see Hezbollah taking shots at the U.S., does that bring the United States into it? I mean, how do you assess what might actually risk uh, U.S. direct involvement in a conflict in the Middle East? So uh, I am a believer occasionally in the concept of strategic ambiguity. Uh, and my guess is that that is at play today. Um, You want to keep Iran guessing as to 
what level of escalation may bring in the United States. Clearly, if there are deliberate attacks on U.S. forces that take significant amount of U.S. life, that risks bringing the United States into this conflict, either with those proxies or potentially directly with Iran. And that's, that is, I think, a pretty clear message that we need to send. Um, as to whether um, a sort of large-scale incursion from the north into Israel would bring the United States into hostilities with uh, with Hezbollah, that, as you know, would have to be a decision for Congress. The Biden administration doesn't have the ability to make that decision mm -hmm. on their own. There would need to be a declaration of war and Congress would need to vote. Um, but I think leaving that question open um, leaving the possibility that Hezbollah draws the United States into the conflict is, you know, probably part of the deterrent. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and, and a good reminder of, of, of how the war power should work. Another risk here that we're seeing around escalation, uh, obviously, is um, the humanitarian uh, crisis in Gaza. Um, thousands of, of people killed, uh, many of them children. And you know, as someone who, again, is well-traveled, how much those images are likely, you know, being consumed around the world and could get worse in, in the instance of a ground invasion. Um, what, what is your concern about, uh, obviously, first and foremost, your concern is about the innocent civilians and what can be done to help them. Uh, I also wanted to kind of surface this question that, that I think people have not yet, you know, in, integrated in this conversation of, of, of the risks to the U.S. of kind of being you know, so outwardly uh, in support of Israel, the president went there, that as that humanitarian crisis escalates, that that kind of gets laid at our doorstep in a way that kind of could further harden this sorting of the world where the global south is drifting away, uh, doesn't see the U.S. as caring about their concerns, more open to the China's and Russia's skeptical of Ukraine. I mean, th these things all do come together in some way. And, and, and are we appropriately evaluating the potential risk to, to kind of U.S. interest and reputation from what is an escalating humanitarian crisis in Gaza? Um, so I think that is a real risk, and it's a greater risk if we don't properly message that the United States can believe in two things at once. We can believe that Hamas needs to be held accountable, but we can also believe that it is necessary to carry out that mission in a way that protects as many civilians, as many children inside Gaza as possible. We simply don't believe that you have to make a choice between um, recentering the moral order of the universe after these attacks, but also protecting civilian life. It's also important to message that the only country that is actively at work trying to make sure that civilians are protected, trying to make sure that fuel and food and medicine is entering Gaza is the United States. China and Russia aren't um, working the phones to try to open up humanitarian pathways. They're not using their chits with the Egyptians to open up the crossing. They're not putting dollars on the table. It's the U.S. who's leading that conversation. And sometimes we don't um, engage in the, 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 the diplomacy of, of, of comparison. Um, and we need to uh, we need to hear. Um, but but yes, I think President Biden has been fairly forward leaning. Um, and you even heard uh, Secretary Blinken today at the U.N. suggest that we may actually need some temporary pauses in hostilities that Israel may have to stand down for a period of time in order to let aid in 
potentially in order to let fuel get to the places it needs to get to. That's leadership. Um, and I think we've got to do a better job of explaining how high a priority um, protecting civilians is for the United States. And I, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, I think that's a good point about the need to kind of be clear about, uh, you know, the messaging of, of what, what all that we're doing. When you step back from all this, I mean, I think part of what is so unsettling to people is, you know, you have, um, you know, you have a war in Ukraine that is, you know, grinding towards a third year. Now you have this explosion in the Middle East, which risks the kind of escalation we've talked about. Um, the Biden speech, um, you know, which I thought was a you know powerful statement um, de- describing, you know, the U.S., why the U.S. cares about these things. The Biden speech had, you know, uh, and the package that he asked Congress for has understandably um, requests for military support to Ukraine, to uh, Israel and to Taiwan, um, which is kind of the, the third front <laughs> in what feels eerily like the World War II map, you know. And and that's not through any creation of Joe Biden's, but that is something that you. I remember when I read it, the the speech, I I felt like that was an uncomfortable reality to sit with, you know, uh, like it was almost like a four freedoms lend lease kind of message, which you know obviously it was something we're all proud of, but also you know foreshadowed uh, something really cataclysmic. I mean, how, how do you? process this moment that we're in um, in terms of the risks and how, how how we might try to get through it without kind of falling into or spiraling into what could be, you know, an even worse kind of global conflagration? I, I, I think it's one of these moments where you have to appreciate the exceptionality uh, of the last 80 years. Um, you know, this, this world was consumed by massive state-on-state violence for centuries. Um, And the post-World War II order, though certainly not ridding the globe of conflict, um, set up an order in which that kind of massive state-on-state violence was less likely. And if you chart the sort of course of of human events uh, and look at how many of us have died in violent conflict deaths, uh, the numbers are going down in part because of the rules that we set up after World War II. This is a moment where those rules are at risk of falling apart. Um, Big states all of a sudden invading smaller states and getting away with it. Um, Terrorists uh, attacking in brutal ways and sensing no real consequence. So I think this is, um, you know, as President Biden talked about, an inflection point. And if the world falls apart, uh, and all of a sudden borders don't matter any longer, um, well, then ultimately the benefit that has come to the United States from that order uh, disappears. Now, I will say the, the, the reason that democracies feel weaker today um, is largely a, a question of domestic politics. Um, uh, democracies have not been delivering for people. And so you know, on my walk across Connecticut, I'm going to be honest with you, I did meet a bunch of people who had a lot of sympathy for Israel and Ukraine, but, you know, said a version of what about me? Yeah. What about me? And so if you really want American democracy to survive another 75 years, um, we can't spend the entirety of the rest of this year talking only about supporting Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. We're going to have to give people a vision that their life is going to get better, or they're not going to be terribly interested in supporting big long-term packages of aid over 
uh, overseas. Um, that, that I, if you spend more time walking your state than hanging around Washington, D.C., think tank conversations, you will come to the conclusion pretty quickly that um, we better focus on Americans at the same time that we are focusing on the rest of the world. Yeah, no, look, that's uh, that's really good advice. Um, uh, and, and you know, it's easier to talk about these things in concept in Washington than, than having to go out to a town hall or a conversation at a hot dog joint. All right, I have one tough question for you that you may not love, but uh, I, I feel like I have to ask it. Um, uh, Senator Menendez, um, he he's no longer the chair of your committee, the Foreign Relations Committee. He's on the committee. I have to ask it because we literally just talked about in this podcast the kind of awkwardness of a guy that the U.S. Justice Department is literally charged to be a foreign agent. Why is he on the committee, or how does that you know how does that affect the running of that committee? Um, I, I get that you're probably somewhat limited in this one, but uh, but I did want to uh, pose it to you. Yeah, no, listen, I think it's a fair it's a fair question. So you know, we took the step of removing him as chairman. I am amongst those in the Senate who believes that he should resign. Um, but you know, this is a new charge, right? It's about a week old that the, the he's been charged with being a foreign agent, and I think it's a logical question to ask whether someone who is um, subject to that accusation should be receiving classified briefings, um, which is which are available to you as a member of that committee, uh, but also available to you as a United States senator. I don't know that I necessarily um, uh, think that he should be removed from the committee, but I do believe that we should probably have a conversation um, about whether Senator Menendez should still have uh, access to uh, the kind of briefings that might be relevant or connected to the charges here that have been um, that have been levied by the prosecutors. I think that's maybe the next step in a conversation I'm sure we'll have amongst colleagues um, uh, over the course of this week. Yeah, no, and it's a good, it's a good, I mean, look, uh, there's so many reasons, including your last answer, why Donald Trump shouldn't be president. <laughs> but there's, it, on the very smaller reason, but not insubstantial one of like uh, being uh Good stewards of of the nation's secrets and 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 protocols. Uh, I think that would be a good process. Um, well, look, thanks so much for joining us, Senator, uh, and and really admire your efforts to kind of wrestle with the complexity of these things. So, uh, best of luck, and we'll uh, we'll see if you get a speaker on the other side to to actually do some stuff. That would be that would be nice. All <laughs> this is all this is moot if we don't uh, if we don't have a functioning House of Representatives. Can you be a speaker? I I saw that you know Trump can be. Does that mean anybody could? Could you throw your hat in the ring to be the uh, speaker of the House of Representatives? We, we, we came up with the idea this morning of we'd, we'd just bring all nine candidates over to the Senate Democratic Caucus. We'd tell you which one was most objectionable to us, and maybe that person would have a chance to get to 218. So I want to be helpful in any way that I can. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's hope it happens before the government shuts down. But uh, good to see you, and thanks as always. Thanks, Ben. All right, Ben, let's close out the show with our new subscriber Q&A segment. So we're going to play this for everyone this week. But if you want to hear these going forward, you have to join the friends of the pod at crooked.com slash friends. When you do, you can ask us questions uh, on your own or just hear these biweekly Q&As uh, and listen to Pod Save the World ads free, which I know everyone likes because they're sick of hearing me read the same ads. So let's get to the questions, Ben. Jeff asks, are there any credible and peaceful Gaza political organizations that are anti-Hamas that could be a potential partner to help Israel remove Hamas and protect civilians? It seems that the best, least catastrophic option is to have an alternative to Hamas that Israel would be willing to work with to change political power in Gaza, remove Hamas, and stabilize the situation. Great question, Jeff. 
I think it's a great question. I guess my answer would be that, uh, you know, in part because Hamas is a violent and repressive uh, organization, there, there's not really like an organized political opposition. But what I would look for in that kind of circumstance, uh, and I think it's a good rule of thumb, even in, in less fraught situations, is there are Gazans that have civil society around the provision of basic services. You know, there are health workers who team together to provide emergency uh, care. There are people that try to help uh, Palestinians with like legal services or to to meet basic needs. I, I've often found that, it, you know, if you go underneath like a corrupt or violent political structure, the best alternatives sometimes aren't just like, you know, sometimes you get a brave dissident, but it's like who has credibility in this community? You know, and that person may not be a politician, but all the better. You know, so I would be trying to identify what is the best functioning civil society in Gaza, who has credibility in neighborhoods. Um, you know, who who we've heard some articulate voices just on this podcast. You know, um, there are people, um, and we should never think that there's no alternative. Now, there may not be like a built-up political party because Hamas wouldn't allow that, but I do think that part of the work that should be done. Um, and ideally in partnership with Palestinians, um, is, is trying to identify those people that, again, may not be in active politics now, but may have the credibility to do so um, if there's a, a changed reality there. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that Hamas hasn't always controlled the Gaza Strip and, and won't thus it won't always be that way. I mean, we mentioned this before, but in 2006, the Bush administration forced the Palestinian Authority to hold elections in Gaza. Um, Hamas won those. They didn't win all of uh, every seat, but then they violently took control of power and pushed out Fatah, uh, their rival. So I do think, you know, that's just a way of saying that, like, don't feel like that Hamas is this deeply, deeply entrenched organization. There's no way to get rid of them. Now, the flip side of that, Ben, I think like the kind of the convenient answer here would be, okay, Israel clears out Hamas and then they install the Palestinian Authority in the Gaza Strip to kind of run it for them as a proxy. I think that is a, a recipe for a government that will not be looked at as being particularly legitimate uh, and maybe short-term beneficial, but a long-term uh, mess. So. Yeah, this is the problem I have even with some of the, like uh, the, the Egyptians had this peace summit the other day with Mahmoud Abbas and and, and look, I'm all for peace summits, but the, pretending that the Palestinian Authority has any credibility with the Palestinian people is 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 part of the problem here. I mean, the 87-year-old Mahmoud Abbas camped out in Ramallah, you know, like subcontracting off of international aid, running a pretty corrupt organization. That guy's not going to come into Gaza and, you know, run things. I mean, there, there has to be a more bottom-up process. And, you know, it, I, I'm, it should be said, like, Sometimes Israel doesn't like permit that to happen. You know, th mm -hmm. there have been Palestinian leaders that were nonviolent that were getting some traction, leading kind of demonstrations and things, and then they get thrown in prison. You know, um, there has to be a space for an alternative to emerge here. Yeah, if you don't allow people to uh, use politics as an outlet to express their frustrations, then uh, they will turn to something else. Yeah. So Ben, here's a question from uh, Bippity Boppity. In, in my heart, I hope that President Biden is holding back his true opinion on civilian casualties in Gaza for a strategic purpose. Samantha Power notes in her memoir, a similar situation for the Armenians, where President Obama could not acknowledge their history. 
Can you please explain what the probably similar reasons might be to avoid denouncing avoidable civilian casualties in Gaza? Perhaps understanding it will make it seem less hopeless. Thank you. So the mm. the that's really the reference in the question to Samantha Power was uh, the failure, and we've talked about this a lot on this show, of the Obama administration to recognize the Armenian genocide. Uh, it happened. Um, we did not acknowledge it because uh, a bunch of you know smart people thought that it would lead. Uh, Prime Minister Erdogan, uh, I think it was, he was then Prime Minister, right? Yeah, uh, to flip his lid and for Turkey to turn away from being an ally and do a bunch of unhelpful things. I think we've all said in hindsight that was the wrong calculation uh, and a mistake. Now, I'm curious what you think, Ben. I'm, I'm not totally sure that compares here because we're talking about something sort of that happened in history. Um, and I do think, I don't know, look, I'd like to see Biden talking a lot more openly about his concern about civilians in Gaza. I think the empathy he showed in Israel was incredible and powerful and that there should be a similar meeting in the Oval Office for, you know, people with family in Gaza, you know, so we can hear from them directly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good suggestion because, I mean, you don't want to suggest, um, you know, it's interesting when there was a, the horrific killing of the Palestinian American uh, in Illinois, you did see the White House come out and speak to that. You'd like to see kind of a similar level of empathy and candor about what is happening in Gaza. Look, I think it's in part because we allow ourselves, and I've even noticed it in some of the responses to this podcast, you know, we are allow, allow ourselves to think that um, you can't do two things at once. You can't say you support Israel in, in this horrific time and then just kind of candidly describe what is happening in Gaza, you know, um, and, and I, I think that's uh, I think that's a false choice, and I think it's a trap, you know, um, because uh, the world can see what's happening in Gaza, um, and you know, we used to have a sometimes there's a Dan Pfeiffer was usually the best at cautioning against like narrating events, but there, there's two differences here. Like, um, it, it is right you don't want to narrate every event in the world. But one is this is like the epicenter of what's happening in the world. I mean, the eyes of the world are on this and the U.S. should have like a moral and ethical position. And just thinking that saying respect the laws of war kind of counts as seeing the cost to civilians. It doesn't. It gets you halfway there. It doesn't get you all the way there. And I think just feeling that concern publicly um, would, would be important. And by the way, like if some people don't like it because it feels like some pressure on Israel we've talked about this a lot, like if we don't think it's right for Israel to be doing certain things, I don't know why it helps Israel to not say that, you know, the Biden people will say it's better to deliver those messages in private. But when, you know, this leads me to the second point I was going to make. Part of the reason why we have to narrate events is we, we arm Israel to the tune of over $3 billion a year in military financing. And there's a supplemental package. Like we, we are not an uninterested party here, you know, and I think that does raise the bar on the U.S. to call out things and to name things and 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 to see the equal humanity of everybody on each side of this conflict. Yeah. And listen, I think for a lot of people in the United States, it's probably very easy to read an article about a massacre at a music festival and think to yourself, I could have been there. My friends could have been there. You know what I mean? You can see yourself in that position. Uh, when you hear about stories in Gaza, 
it's easy to feel like that's a very far away place that you maybe don't understand that feels distant. I think one of the jobs of the president can be to lift up the core humanity of people in both places and just help make clear that everyone's the same, even if they speak a different language than you or look different than you or live in different circumstances. And I think that gets lost in a lot of the coverage for a variety of reasons and is something that, you know, political leadership can help address. And, and look, it, it, it feeds, look, there, there, there's on the Israeli side, there's this kind of fear that this trauma of what has happened to the Jewish people throughout history is being reawakened and therefore Jewish people generally feel more vulnerable. And that is something that I think people have to be mindful of. I think on the Palestinian side, to the dynamic you're describing, that body language kind of serves to in, intentionally or not, you know, convey that their life is of less value, you know, um, that it's not the same, you know, when when their kids are killed. And that's wrong. Um, and and I guarantee you, by the way, if you don't know people in places like Gaza, have one conversation, you know, realize that they're just the same as you, like, the, like care about your kids just as much, like have the same aspirations, probably like in these, this day and age, like use the same apps and do a lot of the same things. And, and, um, but it's also the case that the rest of the world sees this. And, and, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast and asked, you know, the quote unquote global South and why they don't support the war in Ukraine and why they are drifting away from the US. Like, well, this is part of the reason why, because the global South sees themselves in that position of, are our lives valued as much by the superpower in Washington as other lives? And, and so this is an uncomfortable conversation, but I think it's one we need to have, again, on both sides, because the Israelis feel a distinct trauma that is, is different than like what a lot of people would feel in the world because of their history. The Palestinians feel this, I think, sense of being devalued. And that that's not something you want to be condoning even implicitly. No, absolutely not. Okay. That's it for us for the, the Q&A portion. Uh, I just want to say thanks again to Senator Chris Murphy for joining the show. Thank you, Najla Shawa. Thank you, Abby Own, uh, And thank you, Amir Tibone, for all sharing your stories with us. And uh, we really appreciate it. And we're thinking about and praying for all of you. And talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Cherlin. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolles. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 
Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicholas and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagles Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all-in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at OCOcean.com.